will find you. And I will kill you. Yeah. I am the walrus. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Just been revoked. Open the pod bay doors, Tom. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Because it is my name! I see Dave. Today, Junior? Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Like scary Uh huh. What's your favorite scary movie? The price is wrong, bitch. Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And uh, just before we get started with our two film, very two different films uh, reviews, just wanted to thank everyone who did tune in and listen to our Gina Carano discussion episode. Um, Without us even promoting it, we got what I think is a nice amount of listens and, uh, we did not get any death threats as far as I know. So, uh, you know, at least we didn't upset anybody too much. Um, you know, if you disagree, you disagree, that's you're right. And, you know, uh, we have no issue with you. And, and honestly, that whole thing was nothing of us having an issue with anyone. It was just how we felt about the situation and kind of the current climate. So again, thank you if you did. Uh, if you didn't, you know, we understand uh, it's not our typical episode, but uh, again, we appreciate the people who did listen to it. Um, so with that out of the way, this week uh, we are going to be covering House of the Witch from 2017 and The Little Things, uh, which was but is no longer streaming on HBO Max. It might still be out in theaters right now, Um, but uh, yes, two very different films to cover this week, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Pat, who, are you a little awake now? Uh, A little bit. (laughs) See how it goes. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm I'm used to it at this point, so Uh, we we love, you know, any type of sleepy hot takes. Now, uh, before we uh, like talk about the plot or anything, how did you come across this movie? It was just one that popped up through Netflix, and I was like, ah, screw it. Well, you know, the funny thing is, and I, I told you this uh, after the fact, is you recommended me to watch it, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go put it on my Netflix. And then I went to my Netflix, and it was already on my list, and I don't don't remember adding it probably read the description and with it being something taking place on Halloween and supernatural, uh, I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Add that to my list. So I've, uh, I've been actually doing a kind of a movie night, Sunday night, not, not really Sunday night, but more Sunday during the day where I watch a couple movies the past couple, uh, weekends. So that definitely fit into it last week when I watched it. Um, and this, in fact, you know, it's, that, it's kind of funny because you brought this up before recording. Um, this guy also directed No Escape Room, which is also on, on Netflix. And I did not really had a discussion, but did have a little bit of an interaction with someone on Twitter who um, really didn't like that movie, uh, No Escape Room. And I uh, kind of approached it from like, I understand where you're coming from. It's not like highbrow horror or anything like that. But 
um, that, you know, for it being the type of movie that it is and, and the type of cast it had, it maybe needed some story, story tweaking, uh, but it wasn't really that bad. And kind of that um, analysis based around the fact that it was uh, a sci-fi movie made for the sci-fi channel. And uh, I believe that House of the Witch was as well because they were both done by, again, the same director and the same company, uh, Mar Vista. And so I need to do more research um, into this, but I'm wondering if Asylum, which had been doing sci-fi movies for a while, um, basically all through the 2010s, I mean, starting with Sharknado and some of the other ones, um, if they've either are splitting time with Mar Vista or uh, they have lost their contract with sci-fi. And Asylum is, and I know you've seen some of the Asylum movies, Asylum's really hit or miss, and it's more misses than hits for me. Um, And, yeah, I've seen Sharknado 1 and 2. I've not watched Sharknado 9,500. But I think that they kind of go off the rails too much. They make too much self-parody, like making fun of of the fact that they make bad movies. And they... um, also have an issue of doing the really bad ripoffs of the big blockbuster that came out the year before or is coming up. Like you had Pacific Rim and they did Atlantic Rim, which I will say the first one that came to mind. Right. (laughs) Well, and I'll say, uh, you know, as much as the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Netflix show was kind of hit or miss for me on the quality, they did a pretty good job tearing that one apart a little bit. But, uh, yeah, they would do those really bad ones. And then they got kind of on the hit with Sharknado, um, which, like, the first Sharknado, yeah, it's bad, but it's enjoyable. And then they decided to take it too far with all the each entry into that franchise. So... If Mar Vista is actually coming in and making more of these sci-fi movies, because that was always a hallmark uh, for me as a kid, was I was always excited for the sci-fi Saturday movie. Like, you knew it wasn't going to be great, but it was just something I wanted to enjoy. They were sci-fi, they were horror. Um, So it was something I was always looking forward to. And uh, they kind of, once Asylum was taken over, they really kind of fell off and I didn't care about them anymore. But after watching no escape room and watching house of the witch, um, if Mar Vista is in contracts with sci-fi, I might have to look more again at what movies they're releasing because there might be issues with them, but they're more serious in their tone. Like they're trying to actually make a decent horror film in my opinion. Um, so with that preamble, The premise for House of the Witch uh, is a group of high school kids set out to play a Halloween prank at an abandoned house. But once they enter, they become victims of a demonic witch who has set who has set her wrath upon them. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to you and get your initial thoughts or or whatever you want to talk about with the movie. So overall, I I thought it was decent at at best. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a whole lot of horror movie cliches where it's like they're gonna do a prank and then it's like oh wait the guy that's doing the prank isn't around it's a plank that's a plank (laughs) and then um and then like they go to leave they can't leave and then but i did think that there was a lot of good like practical effects and, and even like the cgi stuff that they did wasn't terrible they didn't over rely on it yeah um, but it it was quite predictable, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, with a horror movie like this, it kind of is going to be. There's no real way to go around that unless it's like unless you kind of switch it up. But right. no one ever does. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, I would agree with that. Um, this has a lot of mixtures of kind of Evil Dead meets uh, Night of the Demons um, meets Blair Witch a little bit. Like, uh, I think outside of the film aspect itself, one of the cool things uh, that you didn't know about when you watched it, and I didn't know about it when I started it, but I was looking it up on IMDb, but the house that they use is in Lexington, which isn't, you know, close, but it's not far from here. So it's always kind of nice when... Uh, there's movies set, not necessarily even set, because I don't think it's set in Kentucky, but uh, they use 
local you know areas for for inspiration uh for their films but yeah you have the group of kids and you know also you kind of have the cautionary tale at the beginning the whole urban legend thing of like okay well if you go up to the house and you can take the number off the you know the door and bring it back you know you can prove you're a real badass and then of course you get attacked by the witch um this did a really good kind of i think fleshing out of the characters like uh, they didn't, you know, just go, okay, here's a group of kids, they're stupid kids, and they're getting killed. Like, they tried to do the best to humanize them, to give them enough background, backstory, uh, so that when, in- inevitably, when they're getting knocked off, like, you, you, you don't necessarily care, but you're like, oh, man, like, I latched onto that character, I like that character. Uh, I think the one that I really liked was Dax, um, and, like wasn't anything in particular that he did, but he was just kind of that kid like that I identified most with as kind of like the geek, a little bit of a geek, but he's not really a geek and like trying to do the practical ways of trying to get out of the house and like, you know, we'll just fine. We'll just burn this mother down. And, uh, you know, of course it doesn't work out well. Uh, but I think they also did kind of have a problem of trying to figure out who their protagonist, main protagonist is like, yeah, it's an ensemble cast, but, uh, I felt like um, I can't remember the character's name. Uh, yeah, it is Shane. Um, Shane, I felt like he was intended to be the main character because he's like the one who stayed in this town while the rest have all gone to college. And his dad wants to, you know, pay for him to go to school and stuff and not be a mechanic or not do what he just wants to do in life. And yet it never really felt like once they were in the house that it, it tried to be his story. It felt more like, um, if I got the characters right, cause there's so many of them, Lana's character, the girl who's kind of the more of the social outcast amongst the group, um, who moved away. Like I think when they were younger or something and has come back for this Halloween, like it, it's, it shifted to focus more on her and it just didn't seem right. But my main problem story wise with the film was, they didn't do enough backstory on the witch. Like you get some pieces here and there. Um, and I, I told you after watching it, like what I would have done is I would have humanized her a little bit. I would have made her been maybe like, if you're familiar with the video game terminology, like a white witch, like, or, or a Wiccan where she, yeah, was not doing things that were acceptable, but she was maybe doing it to benefit people like heal them through Wiccan means or stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, got accused of being a witch and was burned or, or drowned. Uh, I believe she was drowned. Uh, uh, and, um, this is now her vengeful spirit coming back and basically being corrupted by the actions of the townspeople at that time is now become what they thought her to be. And, and you don't get any of that. She's just kind of there and, and, you know, she, plays her tricks on the kids and and knocks them off one by one. And I also don't think that they did a good like they they do a good enough job of setting up that she's taking something specific from each of them. Like she can't just get it all from one kid. Uh, but I don't think they could do a good enough job of incorporating what she is taking from each one uh, and how it's actually impacting her. Um, but I will agree with you. Like practical effects were really good. I think the age makeup on uh, was Rachel. I was very impressed for for a very low budget again made for TV movie. You don't expect it, like really high quality age makeup, and I thought it was really really good for her. And even like the the boils that they did mm-hmm. on Dax were pretty decent as well. They started out fine, but I think the more the more it went on, yeah. they, they kind of overdid it. But like at first, it was pretty. Yeah, it, it started out really good, and then it, the the more it progressed, and the more it was actually like impacting how he looked, it, it kind of was overdoing it. That's the other thing too is, and maybe I missed it when watching it was like. The age thing for Rachel made sense because she seemed more of a vain type character, like more uh, worried about her looks and her youth. Uh, But with everything else that she was kind of taking from each of the other kids, it didn't like how she was doing it and what it was doing to them didn't make sense. Like him for the boils. Like Mm -hmm. what did what did the boils reflect and what was she taking from him? Um, So I think. 
like I said about the little bit about no escape room, like there's just some tweaks that this story really needed. And maybe a little bit more character development. Not a whole lot. Yeah. Just to kind of make those things make sense would have helped. Yeah, the the relationship with Shane and his father, I think, was the most that needed work on because you just his father only shows up like four times in the movie. And it, I mean, you just get a, he's a jerk, but like you don't understand why he's so motivated, like why he wants to get his son into college, why he wants him to leave his job. And and then like why he's getting him followed and, and then kind of the whole end scenes and stuff like that, like the dad just didn't. It didn't impact me enough to be like, okay, I can understand his motivations. I can understand why he's doing what he's doing or why he's so controlling. And I I just think that that was a really missed opportunity. And that's part of the problem with the whole Shane character. Like I'm, I'm, you're kind of led to believe he's the protagonist, but they just don't do a good enough job with putting him forth as the central protagonist. Um, what else did I have to say about the only other kind of I had two major issues? And this is spoilers a little bit because this does deal with the end. Um, but when Lana's out in the water and she's screaming for help, the cop and Shane's dad are not far away. And like she is shouting like it's not like help, help. It's help, help. Like and they're not that far away. And they don't hear her, you know, and then she's dragged down, obviously way too long. And then they pull the, then it goes from night to day. Mm-hmm. So obviously a few Time hours lasts, have passed yeah. and then they pull her out. Well, they pull someone out of the water and like resuscitating. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I get suspension of disbelief, but there's no way like yeah. a couple hours, three hours later, four hours later that they're going to pull a body out of the water and expect to be able to resuscitate it. So uh, and then, of course, it's done with the whole switch bait and switch and reveal that, you know, the witch has got basically everything, the heart and soul, body, all that stuff and is now unleashed on the public. And that's kind of where it ends. I don't think i fully understand that final goal you know like i i get the whole coming back to life thing yeah well not even necessarily coming back to life but like what maybe it's just to even leave the house like because obviously the kids can't leave so and she's never left like the property there's never anything that's been noticed outside of the property but like what um what what is what is she going to do now? Like, is she going to now wreak havoc on this new world or is she just going to try to just go on and live? You know, it's it, it just like I don't hate the ending because I kind of like that note that it ends on. But again, it's the lack of developing of the witch character in of herself. Like we talked about, uh, you know, that they did a fairly good job with characterization and character building, but they could have done a little bit more with some of them. But they really failed in developing the witch, um, and in my opinion, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I think had they like <clears throat> had they found more items around the house to kind of like, oh, this says da 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 da, like whatever. Yeah, and kind of flesh out that backstory a little bit. It would have been a little bit better. Yeah, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't the worst character. To oh, no, for a, absolutely for a not. villain I've ever seen. So. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like, um, honestly the ghost and, and Ant-Man and the wasp, like that's one of the worst character developments for a villain. Um, not, and that's not to knock that film. Cause I really like that movie. It's just like, you set this person up as a villain and they're not really a villain. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, you, you still need to have, and what was, there was something I believe that, I can't remember if you and I have covered it or Leslie and I covered it, but where we, Oh no, it, we actually haven't really covered. It was wonder woman 84 where it's just like, we have, we have talked about it on the podcast. I, I do remember that now, but there was just the villains weren't villains. So like, who are you rooting for Diana to triumph over, you know? Cause like you can understand 
uh, Barbara's, you know, motivation. You can understand Maxwell's motivations for why he's doing what he's doing. Like if they didn't humanize them way too much, then you'd be like, okay, yeah, they're bad guys. And, you know, we want our hero to win, but you've just like made them flawed people that we all are. But I don't think any of us all will necessarily go through maniacal means. And that's kind of the problem here is they've made her so villainous in the witch, but like nothing that can make you go, okay, but why? Like, that's where I think if they would have made it set out like that, she was wrongfully executed or wrongfully murdered by the townspeople. To me, that's enough motivation for someone who would have a vengeful spirit, who would then try to do whatever she could to come back and then unleash her vengeance upon the community. Instead of just being bad and then always being bad. Basically. is basically what they were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because then in this way, it justifies the reason for why the townspeople murdered her or executed her because she was a bad witch. So it's like they weren't in the wrong. No one was in the wrong except the witch. And the witch is still the only one in the wrong, in, you know, the rest of the rest of the movie. Um, but, yeah, it was. Uh, counterpoint. Good. Yes. They were trespassing. <laughs> is it trespassing when no one lives there? I mean, technically it is. Legally it is. I'm not, you know, advocating anyone just to go on, you know, abandoned property and do whatever the hell they want. But to be fair, for partying kids, they were not trashing the house. They're very bad at partying. Yes. They, like they, they did uh, very little that most partying teenagers would do in an abandoned house. Like I will, I will say that they didn't waste any time getting into like the, the horror. Aspect. No. Yeah. Yeah. They, they really kind of jumped into it. You get, you know, the, that beginning sequence with the kid on his bike and then you get, a little bit of Shane and his father, and then they're all basically heading there. And then it's them there and they're a couple seconds. Uh, the one um, Lana, I, I believe it is, or one of the girls ha- ends up seeing kind of something or, or having a, a fit. And then everything like the, the other girls reaching to the wind are looking at the mirror. That's the cracked mirror. The hand comes out and then they can't get out. And then it's basically just all straight through horror through the rest of it. And I think that's one of my main critiques with a lot of horror films is when they wait until like the last 15 minutes and then it's everything. Yeah. I think like the they, they try building it all up to like a few good scares and not like anything. So thoroughly throughout. a little a little counterpoint, in, but yet in agreement with you, I think the perfect in a ba- in a basic horror film, uh, you know, something like this or something like, uh, you know, uh, a Jason movie or a slasher, uh, even in most supernatural films, 20 minutes of setup, you know, because most of these most of these horror films are an hour and 20 minutes or some are even a little under an hour and 20 minutes. But, you know, at at, at the small end they're an hour and 20 minutes 20 minutes of setup time then you spend the rest of that hour going through the rest of the journey i think that that's about the adequate time now my counterpoint is is found footage horror films because of the way that they're shot and the way that they tell their stories i am more lenient on the amount of setup but they still have to, for me, for me to really like it, still throw kind of some things in there. I think one of the reasons why I didn't like Paranormal Activity 1 as much as I did some of the others was it did. It, it was, okay, a few things here and there, but nothing like really outrageous. And then you get to the last five, ten minutes of the movie, and that's when it really just ramped it to 11 and was like, oh, wait, now the movie's over? Um I think a similar movie that kind of did this was uh, Stakeout, which I I, I really liked. Um, I was actually talking with someone on Twitter about this, too, was like the whole setup and the whole middle of the film were fantastic. Uh, kind of this joking mockumentary thing. And then it takes a serious turn. But then when you get to the end, it just ends and you're like, well, wait a minute. What about X, Y and Z? Like you just threw those elements in there and now we have no explanation for what any of that actually means because like it's about a guy who thinks he actually hunts vampires and Mm. kills vampires and then somehow a cult gets involved and 
it, it's just kind of crazy by by the point that that movie ends. So I agree. Like you don't want to set up too much, but you do have to do ample setup for at least characters getting set and uh, established. Uh, kind of getting your lore and background established and then go straight into the rest of the horror film. I think one of the best ones that has done this uh, has been the Collector series. Um, the collector and Collection, like, they don't waste any time. You get a little bit of setup, maybe five, ten minutes, and the rest of the runtime is, you know, them trying to get out of whatever craziness that they found themselves in. Going back to Paranormal Activity, I think that was, like, right around the time when Netflix started doing, like, actual streaming online. Uh, yeah, probably. I think that was like one of the first movies I probably watched streaming on Netflix. Okay. And like when they would when they would do all the, like the um the advertisement for it, they would just like show people in theaters freaking Oh out. yeah, yes. And I remember that. I, I watched it, I was like, okay, a chair move. That that like, you know, I will say <laughs> the door closed. Uh I did see that in theaters uh, with my my brother and and sister-in-law and like I was actually kind of excited to see it cuz again, like that's how they marketed it was like look at all these uh reactions from people who've seen the movie early or or uh, no or have just seen it. And I'm like, "Okay." And then I'm watching it and I'm like, "All right." And yeah, everyone else like out in the audience is like freaking out and stuff and but I will not forget uh, and this is the only thing that kind of makes me a, a little bit long for, you know, the old days pre-COVID of movie theaters was when the Ouija board lights up on fire. We had some African-American guy just get up and go, oh, hell no. And he ran out of the theater like it, I had to laugh at that. And that was just one of the funniest things. Uh, and I know because uh, Jess listens to the podcast and I think I've mentioned this on a previous uh, episode as well. She had totally forgotten about that and was like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Um, but like the one of the things that they did that improved and then, of course, it it eventually went into the downfall of its own series was like to up those kind of uh, supernatural moments. And when the cameras are not focusing on the people and more on what's going on in the house and then like three has the fantastic uh, sheet ghost thing, um, which has been now duplicated and replicated ad nauseum in other other found footage films and then of course it just when it gets to four five and six it just like really falls apart and it's like okay i have no idea what the hell's happening anymore with this series but yeah i again like this is kind of the old style that i liked on the sci-fi tv nights on saturday nights was like it's trying to be a good horror movie now does it succeed kinda like it's like you said, it's not one of the worst ones you've seen, but it's not one of the best ones you've seen either. It's just a kind of that middle of the road. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that there's a, a lot more horror films that are out there that could aspire to that. Um, but it wasn't lampooning itself. It wasn't doing ridiculous gags. It wasn't overusing, you know, cheap CGI. They tried to keep practical effects as much as possible in this. And, I think for the most part, it really worked out. I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't, I didn't hate it. And the, and the cast did a good job. Like mm -hmm. I, I, there may be some moments in weak acting here and there, but like for the most part, they, they made their characters believable. Uh, and you kind of felt like that they were actually going through this turmoil and everything. And that, you know, I certainly, again, a little bit spoilers, but like I, I wanted the final girl to, get out there and it was like that didn't happen and like you know at least the movie actively made me want at least one of the one of the children one of the kids teenagers college students whatever they are we're old well i'm older than you so i'm more of an old folky now um but there's some they're somewhere around that age <laughs> damn kids get <laughs> off my lawn um anyways they were at least from the age of 10 to 20 <laughs> Let's just say that at least they're not 30 year olds trying to play high school students. We'll 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 give them that. That's fair. Um, but they they all did a very good job with the script. And I think that they did a good job with each other. Their chemistry was all believable. Um, so I, I, I can really applaud it for putting a lot of effort into trying to make it even if the budget wasn't there, even if the highly skilled writers weren't there. Honestly, I would take 
this movie over some of the A24 movies that everyone likes to laud as being this highbrow horror. Um, as much as like I like The Witch and I like Midsummer, I thought Hereditary was awful. Um, they Come at Night, or, or what was that the name of it? Whatever the one with um, um, Joel Edgerton was, was all right, but it wasn't that great. And yet everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. It's one of the best horror movies ever. That's the one where they're like at one camp and they're trying to get to the other one. And- uh, no, it's kind, not really, but it is like a post-apocalyptic kind of, you don't know if there's zombies involved or, or if it's just like a blood thing. It, it, it just doesn't really do a good job. It tries to do too much atmosphere rather than telling story. Um, but it's just, that's that's the thing is like those movies are trying way too hard to be highbrow like art and sometimes you just got to learn like we got to we got to find this fine middle ground so that's where i'll take a something like house of the witch where it knew or the people probably knew hey this isn't going to be an evil dead this isn't going to be a friday the 13th but we're still going to put effort into it and we're still going to try to make a good uh, a good horror film uh, so I have to really give them credit for that. And, uh, that's kind of all I have to say about it. Do you have any other final thoughts? Uh, no. Um, the one where like the kids are messing with the lady, the one that was like psychotic. What was that one? That one found a good balance between the, between like art horror and the ones that kids that are messing with yeah, the like, ladies. So the, the husband left his wife for, like, this chick that he was writing a book on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he takes her to his cabin. The kids don't like the lady. Oh, the one we watched. Uh, the Lodge. Yeah. The, the Lodge. Lodge, yes. That one found a decent it, it was, yeah, I still had issues with that one. Um, but, like, it it, it, it did kind of strike a, a, a better balance mm-hmm. uh between horror and rather than art like it it it, it didn't delineate a whole lot to itself but like that separated it from something like an a24 film but it it, it was still better than some of them because like they still put in horror elements they made you question a lot of things uh they they didn't just try to be like ooh look how smart we can be or, yeah. or edgy or whatever, uh, and I mean horror is meant to be edgy so there's I mean there's nothing wrong with that because like I think people just go to Hereditary and they go the head scene you know and that's like that's the thing they focus on and it's like yeah but even before you get to the head scene you've got an out almost an hour of just slog and like what the frack is going on and then after you get to the after the head scene you're like all right i'm in for another hour of what the hell is going on and like i i again that that's a movie i would have written differently uh, if i were ari aster and i mean i'm not obviously we're just small podcasters but like i i just would have made it more actually realistic i would have eschewed the supernatural stuff as being part of um tony collette's uh broken psyche and grief of dealing with the loss of her mother and being the dad uh, uh, gabriel burns character of being more of the the actual protagonist of the film and it's him trying to actually put the shambles of his broken family back together and trying to keep that family together and i would have gotten rid of all of that other supernatural stuff. And that's kind of like what I liked about midsummer on the other side of that was like, there's not really supernatural stuff, but they did enough coolness with the culture and the folklore and dealing with that version of grief that it was like, Oh, I really like this. Like there, there's a lot more to dive into. There's a lot more to explore in this one. And like you along with uh, Florence Pugh's character is finding out what's going what's going on as she's finding out whereas hereditary was just like you don't know what the hell's going on and then you get weird headless body corpses and cults and shit and you know it's like i i i i don't hate anyone or i don't you know disparage anyone for really liking hereditary but i just don't see it i I need to rewatch it how about this we'll save this for a future episode of the podcast because i did this with captain marvel I'll do a rewatch review and see how I feel about it removed after my initial watching. See if I can find anything else that maybe I missed the first time or maybe after having seen Midsummer, like maybe there's more of a of a thing to it that I, I just was not catching on to. But 
with that said, we'll move on from that review of House of the Witch, which was filled with a lot of other stuff we talked about. And we're going to talk about The Little Things, um, the new Warner Brothers movie that was released simultaneously in theaters and HBO Max, uh, starring Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. Um, the premise for this one is Kern County Deputy Sheriff uh, Joe Deacon is sent to Los Angeles for what should have been a quick evidence-gathering assignment. Instead, he becomes embroiled in the search of a four-serial killer who is terrorizing the city. Um, so this one, like, I actually didn't know anything about this movie prior to it being released. Um, I mean, I would see things kind of on Facebook ads and stuff like that, but not one that like I was actively looking forward to. And I think you had started it and uh, was like, you really wanted to cover this movie for the podcast. So I was like, all right, well, you know, HBO Max, I can stream it for free. You know, might, might as well watch it. And I I really like this um, movie. The main thing I have and you and I might disagree on this and we'll try to keep this spoiler free, um, mainly because it is still out in theaters and. You know, I we'll I hold off. To we'll, the end. Yeah, we'll hold, we'll hold off on the end. But uh, the ending itself, I I wanted more. Like it left me wanting more. You know, so it, it's just. But other than that, like I I really liked it. It's a slow burn thriller. Um, it's got a great cast. Rami Malek, I liked, but also had problems with during the movie because I didn't like his whatever accent he was trying to do. It was a little bit weird. Yeah. Like it, cause <laughs> the thing with accents, like normally I can't pick up on like a horrible accent uh, or anything like cause someone would go, Oh, that's a good British accent or Oh no, that's a horrible British accent or that's a bad American accent. You could tell whatever accent he's trying to do. Cause like, it's not like he's trying to, like do a British accent. I mean, he's, I believe he's American born or at least he's been in America for a while. Um, that in other projects I've ever heard him in, he's had pretty much a straightforward voice. Um, but you can almost tell he's having to make the conscious choice to deliver the lines in that accent. Like that's how off putting it was for me. It was like, I could feel him needing to make the active choices in his brain to make that type of, of, of vocal, uh, expression. I think the one thing that I have difficulty with movies like this is when, when you have someone like a Denzel Washington, they basically play Denzel Denzel Washington. Washington. (laughs) And I, I I have a little bit of trouble just kind of like getting into it a little bit. Can't disassociate. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I would agree with that too. Uh, like his, the character he's playing in this movie is one that he's kind of playing, uh, played in fallen. He's played in, um, out of time. Um, you know, even man on fire a little bit. Uh, I haven't seen the equalizer movies, but I feel like maybe a little bit of equalizer is in there as well. So, it is kind of hard to to differentiate him from playing himself. Like there's just some of these actors that you're out there and you're like, I'm seeing Denzel. I'm seeing um, Hugh Jackman. I'm seeing Matt Damon, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm, hell, Robert De Niro. You know, you, you see them and like that's that's who you see on the screen. You don't see the character they're playing. Um, but I think he did do enough to at least go, OK, this is the Denzel of this, you know, world. Like it wasn't like, Oh, this is the same character from those four other different movies that take place in different worlds. Um, but I can, I can see that aspect because it is that kind of tortured cop, uh, you know, kind of just wants to move on, but can't move on. Uh, I will say that there's also, I mean, it's not a short movie. It's two hours and eight minutes. Uh, and not that I felt like it was too long, but I do feel like there were maybe some things they probably could have trimmed down. Like I, I didn't need him going and revisiting his ex-wife, like because it ultimately had no yeah, impact it, on the story. It didn't really matter. I mean, other than just like him having the conversations and then talking about her and being in the area and maybe wanting to see her, like I would have been more impacted if something with his daughter was involved, like because that 
would have kind of felt more in line with what the story they were telling. Um, and the big thing with this movie that might upset people or might make them might turn them off is this movie is very ambiguous. Uh, it doesn't. And, th- and this is kind of where I line into having a little bit of a problem with the ending is it just doesn't tell you specifically what has happened or who's responsible um, cause like you, you do get the background and I like how they develop Denzel's character and how they reveal near towards the end, like what it was in his past that caused him to kind of go into isolate isolation and take a pay, you know, pay cut and everything like that. Uh, and then kind of his budding relationship with Rami Malek's character and this, you know, serial killer that's out killing women. There's there's essentially three things that you want explained and you only get two. Basically, <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> you you don't get the the what's in the box. Yeah, yeah. Ending. What's in the box? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you don't you don't get a what's in the box ending. You don't get it. You know, nice. It, nothing is tightly wrapped up with a bow. You know, it, it is. And I and even though I say like I wish the ending would have been done differently, doesn't mean that it really detracts from the movie overall. Like just because the ending is the ending doesn't make me go, well, then the rest of this movie shit. Like, no. And honestly, I kind of like the cliffhanger, not knowing ending. It's, it's something that obviously doesn't get done as much because mm-hmm. it's not as popular to the audience. Right. Like you. <laughs> well, and I guess, you know, that's, that's a very good point. Um, I think maybe, <sighs> If you're going to do that type of ending, and and there's no good way to do this without basically just forecasting it, is uh, you you need to kind of establish that this is a movie that can go that way. And I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it did enough to do that. Like, I think it built up enough for you to be led in the one direction where you're like, okay, I know how this is going to end. And instead, it, it, it just does its cliffhanger. There's a very good um, short story by Stephen King. Uh, right now, I cannot remember the name of the short story, but it's in his Everything's Eventual collection. Uh, and it's about a man who is a kind of like a traveling salesman. And uh, one of his little things is he's, he goes around. the line. <laughs> Go on. He he's, he's goes uh, every time he stops at like a rest stop and he sees like graffiti in a bathroom stall, he writes down the graffiti like in a little notebook um and so like by the by the end of the, about the story he's trying to well the, actually the whole point of the story is he's contemplating suicide uh like nothing's going well in his wi- uh, life he is you know wife is not happy and and all this other stuff so he goes to this one hotel room and he's reminiscing over the stuff he's written down and then he sees like this blinking light out in the field and so he goes out to the field. He's got the notebook in, the, in his hand. Uh, and then he's also got a gun. And then he's like, OK, I'm going to, you know, throw the notebook. It's been a while. So if I get this wrong, it's forgive me. But it's like either if he throws the notebook and the notebook lands open or it lands closed or if this light blinks out or, or doesn't blink out, uh, depending on how that particular thing happens is will determine if he decides to commit suicide or not. And it ends with you not knowing if that thing goes that way. So it allows you as the reader, depending on how you feel about that character to come up with that ending yourself. And I, and I agree, that's not something that's done a lot, especially in film. It might be done a little bit more, um, in television, especially, you know, at the, at a season finale, of course, usually by the season premiere, it gets, uh, you know, explained, but, um, I didn't feel like this was the type of movie that they would have done an ending like that with, but it doesn't still detract from the overall film for me. And Jared Leto, like he's one weird dude. He but can my play, God, he can play some characters. He, he can play some characters. <laughs> Uh, and I'm really interested to see in the Snyder cut his real shot at being Joker. Cause I don't think, and I, and I'm not saying that it was David Ayer's fault and what happened in suicide squad, but like, I don't think we got to see him enough to really get to, to see his range as potentially being the Joker. Um, but yes, he, his character in this movie is weird, creepy, and he plays it so well. And, and 
we've talked about this, but the one the one scene that will probably be my favorite scene out of the entire movie is they lure him out because they suspect him of these killings. They lure him out of his apartment uh, to then go basically break in and look for evidence to see if he's responsible. And so he's called to meet Rami Malek's character down at a, like a local dive bar or diner. Uh, and yet they were stupid because if if I'm in those shoes and I'm trying to set up this elaborate plan, I'd be going down there and meeting him and letting, you know, Denzel do his thing. But no, they let him go. Rami stays outside to be as a lookout and Denzel goes in to break in. Well, enough time passes by that Jared Leto's character is like, OK, something's not right here. So. He grabs the phone and you think like he's called. I mean, I didn't know who he was calling. I thought he was either calling his place or calling, uh, trying to get a hold of Rami Malik. Mm-hmm. But you, you just kind of end it there. And then uh, I think another scene passes and then they show that he's not there at the bar anymore. And now the cops are showing up to the apartment because they they had a break in reported. And you got, you know, Denzel climbing on the freaking roof of the complex trying to not get caught. And then you have Rami Malek just standing there and then he just slowly like looks over to his right and Jared Leto's there holding that drink, taking a sip, you know, and then, you know, takes takes the cup out of his mouth and then just waves. And it just that. Oh, it it was creepy and it was good. It was beautiful. No lines really involved. It was fantastic. And it's probably my favorite scene out of the entire movie. And that's it's definitely up there. Yeah, that and that and obviously I think like the end scene. Yeah, and the suspense and yeah, the ending, the ending, not so much the very end, but that mm. that kind of climax scene uh, to not spoil it, but just out in the the boonies mm. uh, is very well done. And he plays it very strong and, and Rami plays it very strong off of him as well. Um, so. Because they just kind of build off of each other. Yes. Where, like, one's escalating while the other's just like... Don't give a fuck, really. (laughs) It's it's just like, I'm just shitting, you know, I'm shitting with you or or whatever the hell I'm doing. Like, I'm just toying with you, and and it's fun. Um, So, yeah, it was was very good. Uh, I know my parents both, they watched it. They both really liked it. Um, It was very strong in direction. It was very strong in acting. Storytelling, like honestly, there's not much in the story I would I would like say it needs to be tweaked or fixed. There are things they could have shaved out, like meeting up with the ex-wife and um, maybe some other smaller stuff here or there. Uh, but it, it's it doesn't feel too long. It doesn't. Uh, it, it really has a good job building up the mystery. Now, whether you want that adequate satisfaction of what the you know the solution to that mystery is it's going to leave you wanting a little bit but uh it's a very strong it's definitely a movie i will probably when it releases on physical probably be picking it up on physical because i i did like it a whole lot and generally even though we see denzel playing denzel in other movies he's an actor that you can watch like he's he's such a good actor uh and i think that maybe that's a credit that needs to be given to him is like even though you see him playing him in every movie. It's because you've gotten so enwrapped and, and you know, his style and his technique that it's just hard to separate those. And two. how he mainly it's how he delivers. Yes. The lines. Swear to God, man, chews gum the same way. Every movie <laughs> and, the, and the way he speaks through, through chewing gum as well. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it was very good. I, especially if you're a mystery fan and you really like strong mysteries. And if you like Denzel or if you like Rami Malek or, or even Jared Leto, um, like I, I don't know if I would like Jared Leto as a person, but as a musician and as an actor, he's really good. Uh, I mean, just even going back to urban legend, it was like, he, it's still hard to believe he was in that. Cause like, I think my first ex- real exposure, even though I had seen urban legend prior to it was, um, 30 seconds to Mars and, and his, uh, you know, the album that had the kill on it. Uh, and then finding out retroactively like, oh, yeah, no, he's an urban legend and he's in uh, Fight Club and uh, all these other movies. And I like had no idea uh, that that even occurred. Yep, that's the one with Michael Rosenbaum. No, I was trying to <laughs> I was trying to remember the movie. I was like, God, this is going to drive me crazy. Uh, um, 
not a not a was the one sorority chicks or whatever where they all uh dress up like like women to prank on a uh, sorority or something something like that that's that's also with michael rosenbaum um but yeah i i don't have much really else to say because if we were to go really like in depth on it we'd get in the spoiler territory and i think we kind of teetered on it a little bit but um i i really don't want to ruin this movie for anyone who is thinking about seeing it and like we said it's not on hbo max anymore but you can still go out if you're you know local theater is open you can go out and still see it in theaters and i'd recommend seeing it um y- you weren't here for this conversation i don't think i think this was on our last wandavision uh reviews um i want to get your kind of stance on what do you think kind of given with how things have been with covid and stuff like that movie studios uh and this kind of idea of releasing 30 days if they have a streaming service or like Disney Plus did with Mulan where they did premier access and they charged an additional 1999 uh or you know releasing them straight to voodoo for like rent or buy what 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 type of thoughts do you have like cuz on uh, if you I don't know if you go back and listen to episodes but my um my I kind of like this model that HBO is doing right now where they, you know, they're doing that, hey, 30, 30 days, uh, you get access to this movie. Uh, you can watch it as many times as you want in that 30 days. And if you don't, you don't. If you're not signed up, you you know, and I and I am fine with them not allowing free trial users to have access to those movies because, like, that's them fine. Everyone's going to make 10 million different accounts and use as many free HBO Max, uh, you know, two weeks thing to watch all these free movies. Um but moving forward, like if if we can get past this kind of COVID world, would you think that you would like to continue seeing that practice of dual release or a, a premier price tag uh, or like maybe some of these other platforms like Disney Plus adopt kind of the HBO Max thing? What, what thoughts do you have on that? I think we're getting to the point where we're not going to see as many like movies be just released in theaters i think that that may not ever be a thing again i think we might see it being split between theaters and services um i do prefer the hbo style to where like it's already free if you're paying and all that if if someone really wanted to watch a movie they can just get a month and then cancel Yeah. yeah um the the ones that's kind of frustrating is like disney upcharging for their service that you're already spending maybe 70 bucks uh, for the year. And uh, I can't remember what their monthly is. Yeah. You're already spending a, quite a bit of money. Um, and then I'm not sure if Hulu, Netflix or any of those are doing anything like that. I think those are generally just like, no, nah, it's, it's more uh, Amazon um, is doing some like coming to America too. Um, That's right. Yeah. is one of theirs. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with that. It, and I think Leslie and I were kind of on the, on the same page. We both said like, we, we think HBO's um, model is probably the best model. And I, I know uh, I was talking with my brother about this, like 2022, they're planning on movies always or only just being in theaters mm-hmm. and then, you know, maybe being released later on on HBO Max. I like you, I don't see what the problem of a dual release is, um, honestly, because especially if you restricted that you have to be a paying member, like you have to have a charge on your card to be able to access that movie. Um because again, like the free trial thing, yeah, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, you know, it just that's unless there's a guarantee that you're going to renew after that three months or one month uh, initial thing. Uh, there's no guarantee that they're going to get any money out of you, and they do have to make money. And I think that uh, you're going to get more eyes on a project that people might think is dubious, or they might think is, eh, no, I, I'm not sure I want to go see that. Cruella being kind of one of the examples right now where it's like, well, thankfully it was planned for Disney plus release without the upcharge. So it's one where I'm like, okay, I can watch it. If I don't like it, I don't like it, but I'm not, you know, putting any bank towards it. Um, whereas, you know, if I were to go in and see the movie in theaters, well, now I've wasted 10, 20 bucks on a ticket 
and uh, concessions and I hated my experience or I had a bad theater experience, which made me not enjoy the movie. Uh, I think we're at a point where home systems and home equipment is enough. Um, I know Christopher Nolan hates that whole idea of watching a movie at home. Like there's that old guard and every kind of era has that old guard mentality. Um, I know uh, when like Steven Spielberg and, and kind of that era of filmmaking was taking off, uh, they were looked down upon the older filmmakers because, oh, they are making Westerns or they're making this or they're making Jaws, Back to the Future. like And then that became the new gold standard for like 20, 30 years. And now we're kind of it's probably been exacerbated by the whole covid stuff. But now we're kind of hitting that next wave of evolution of entertainment. And uh, I think like kind of the positive reactions to WandaVision and how it's telling a superhero story is like I and I've been championing this for years. It was like that's kind of the future that these big tentpole franchises like I don't think it would be wrong for them to still have like a tentpole movie. But to explore all these numerous characters in the world and, and their interactions is like explore that in television shows, uh, d- 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 develop those characters better uh, through a six season, you know, six episode season, one off or maybe even a couple of seasons, uh, depending on the story you want to tell. That way you can have more established stuff. You can have more easily consumable product. Uh, and I think like with the fact that Kong versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus Kong is coming straight to HBO Max like Mortal Kombat. I think you and I even both talked about it like probably watch it at home first. But if we really like it, we'll probably go in if we can get into a theater. I think our our Ohio theaters are finally maybe starting to open up again. Um, We'll probably still go see it in theaters. And like then at that point, you kind of get double dipping where it's like, oh, yeah, we get some from their subscription fee and some from them actually going to the theater. So I, I don't see it being a bad practice, and I, I really think that, like, again, it all kind of depends on where we go in as world moving into 20, all the way through 21, into 22. If they just decide to go straight to back to theaters, well, I think they're going to see a drop in box office attendance because uh, they were already with the advent of, of platforms like Vudu and like Hulu and Netflix and People were just like, wait, I got to wait just three months before it comes streaming on Netflix. I'll just wait the three months. I did that with plenty of movies mm-hmm. uh, and especially movies. That I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to go see that in theaters. I'm not sure I want to go see Monster Hunter in theaters. Well, now it's on Vudu for, you know, 14 bucks to buy it. And I'll be like, well, OK, if I want to buy it, I can buy it. Like then I've there's the movie, the price of the ticket. Now I actually own the product and then I can watch it as many times as I want or just disregard it in my library. So, yeah, it's it's just one of these things where I think these movie companies and movie execs um, need to really kind of just take a look at it and go, all right, what is our benefit? And I think it also even gives a platform to more risk takers like these projects that they're like, yeah, no, no one's going to go pay their ticket price to go see this in theaters. Well, now they can maybe fund it. Uh, maybe with a little bit lower budget than maybe originally requested or needed and still get it out there. And then they can gauge the reaction by releasing it straight to Max, you know, or, or the Disney or Netflix. Yeah, and I think the big thing with that is, like, the consumers really, like, with any of these streaming services, drive the market. Yeah. Where, like, it'll start trending or something, like... It will hit the top 10 on Netflix, and then everyone's like, well, it's on the top 10. Might as well watch it. Yeah. Uh, one of the good uh, good examples is uh, the the Hotel Cecil uh, documentary that's going on on Netflix right now. Like, I just started watching. I mean, I had already kind of known about it, that it was coming out, so, like, I had intended it. Well, I find out my mom's watched it. And, like, and she – my mom's not necessarily – I mean, it's a th- the type of program she would watch, but it wasn't, like – that was the one thing that she was going to intend to click on as soon as she went on Netflix. But she sees it in that top 10 trending. She takes a look at the preview, goes, oh, this seems interesting. I'm going to click on it. Um, Yeah, it's you're right that it is kind of driving the market. People are more willing to stay at home where then they can pause the movie if they got to go to the bathroom uh, or then they can order out pizza and get it delivered and then have their movie night or, um, you know, I go back to when I saw Kong Skull Island in theaters. Like, 
we had such Jake and I had such a bad experience with that, with people talking and their kids running around and kicking freaking playground balls in the in the aisles and stuff like it it was so distracting and took us out of the movie. We didn't understand half the dialogue that was said because we couldn't hear it, uh, that it was just like, man, this really sucks. But now I can watch it at home. Well, I mean, I I own it, but like watching it at home, I can experience it. I've got a decent sound system, uh, you know, that I can experience almost that theater quality and projectors. You can spend 500 bucks on a projector, thousand dollars on a projector. And then you've got a hundred inch screen. You were almost you've brought the theater to your house, essentially. So I think they really do need to look at this as streaming platforms. Honestly, this isn't even just related to movies, but TV shows, I unless the show has ended and it's on a streaming platform, I don't really watch like regular broadcast television anymore. Um, like right now I'm working through Justify, which, yeah, it was on FX, but it's now all it's it's over and it's on Hulu. Uh, and I've told you I won't get to um, Better Call Saul until they finish that run up and Ooh. it's all up on, on Netflix. Well, because I did the same thing with Breaking Bad and I burned through Breaking Bad in like a weekend. Uh, and I kind of want to do the same with with Better Call Saul. But uh, I, there's these other programs out there. There's anime. There's shows. uh Lupin Lupin uh, is a really good kind of Sherlock-esque French show that it's like, well, it's it's there. I can access all six episodes or I can watch them as I can. Like one of the things I will say that I do like about the week to week release for like something like WandaVision is I wake up every Friday morning, first thing in the morning to avoid spoilers. I watch WandaVision. Then I go to work. Then I can see all the 20,000 spoilers that get posted up at six o'clock in the morning and be like, hi, I already watched it. But it's a show that it keeps me up to like, OK, I I'm really interested in it. I'm going to watch it the once a week um, and it's easy to consume. And, you know, it's it's a way for them to tell a six, seven, eight hour story uh, over a period of episodes. And, you know, I, I just streaming is kind of where things are going to go or even just. Yeah, yeah, I'm physical release guy. I got a lot of physical media i'm still gonna buy physical media but streaming makes it very accessible um think about people who have agoraphobia who don't like to go out well now they can access that content uh and go out and or see that next big avengers movie on disney plus because they have a disney plus subscription or you know the new big newest netflix movie and i i saw someone do a, a thing about the Netflix stuff and like, well, here's the problem with Netflix doing their Netflix movies. They don't have the execs in there looking at this and going, yeah, we can't make this movie. So now they're making all these other movies. And I'm like, but that, that diversifies the market like that, that gives something for everyone. And it also gives someone who might not have, who's actually probably a talented director, a shot like at making a movie it may not be a Hollywood release, but our, our homes are now becoming the new big Hollywood theaters, essentially. Um, so I, I really think that they need to evaluate that, look at that, and determine the best practice. I say simultaneous. Just keep that practice going on and do the HBO Max model. So anyways, that's a weird divergent topic on this, but I did want to touch base with you on that. So let's go into our final scores for the movie. So we'll start with House of the Witch. Uh, what's your score on that? Uh, I'm going to land somewhere, and, and obviously these are going to be like completely different grading systems because they're completely different movies. Right. But I'm going to land somewhere around like a three. I think that's uh that's where I land on it about two point five out of three. Uh, and that's you know like you said it's two different movies, so you're using two different sets of of evaluations for the movie that you're expecting. And again, like I'm we're taking into consideration the budget we're taking consideration uh you know the scale the the company the actors and like taking into account maybe giving it a little leeway on some of those things that you could critically look at and go yeah this doesn't make a good movie and this is problems but understanding okay it's a made for tv movie uh it's got maybe only a two hundred thousand dollar budget versus a two million dollar budget and uh they're using their practical effects because they can't pay for really crappy cgi effects i'm gonna give them some credit for that so yeah i land i land pretty much on a three with that one as well uh so for little things i'm gonna skew at a 3.5 um 
it, that might sound a little low, even though I might have praised the, the movie a lot. But it, I think a lot of it's just mainly driven by my reaction to the ending. Um, like it doesn't destroy the movie for me, but I think it would have been improved if they gave you an either or answer rather than a very ambiguous answer. Um, so that's just kind of my take on it. Like everything else about the movie, directing, the lighting, cinematography, score, acting, all of that is top scale. But it's just some of that ending there just still doesn't sit quite right with me. And I'm I'm about the same. Okay. And it not not so not for the, the same ending, reasons. But I I think it got a little slow at points. Maybe could have shaved a little bit off. But other than that, it was pretty awesome. All right. Well, I think that will wrap us up for this week. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. You know, uh, as always, you can uh, follow the podcast on Twitter at Critics NT Cynics, although we've been a little bit quiet on there recently. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at Critics Not Cynics Podcast. We are on iTunes, uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Podbean. And we found out we are actually on Audible. So if you have an Audible account, you can follow us there and leave us a rate and a review there or leave us a rate and review on any of the uh, podcasting services you listen to the podcast on. Um, We really appreciate that. If you have any feedback or uh, comments or questions, you can always write into the podcast at criticsnotcynics at gmail.com. And again, I, I, I wanted to thank everyone who did listen to our Gina Carano episode who gave us the fair shake uh, of listening to us uh, kind of debate that topic. Um, And maybe even if you disagreed with us, we still appreciate that you listened. Uh, You know, not always do Pat and I agree on, on everything as my, our movie reviews might kind of line up, but you know, we, we just felt very strongly about that. And with how, with having reviewed Mandalorian really hard on here, uh, we felt like it was just something to talk about. So we really appreciate everyone who tuned in and we will talk to you guys next time.